Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. He will send those who can share truth with them and lead them to the full understanding that they need. Those who he sends to fill in the missing pieces that he knows they need for their picture of faith to be complete in Christ. You know, I cannot help but to think of a couple that we had in our fellowship for years. Actually, uh, they came to faith in Christ here and the, the husband of this family had gone on to, to uh, actually grow in the Lord so much over time that he, he became an assistant pastor here. And uh, I can't help but think how they came to faith in Jesus. I remember when they first showed up at the church and they were using all the Christian lingo using all the Christian lingo, and I immediately made the assumption that they knew Christ. That's a bad assumption. Lingo doesn't mean people know Christ. And one morning I was teaching through Acts chapter 10 on the, on the account of Cornelius, and I had written a note to myself in the middle of that, and uh, I, I kind of felt like a prodding of the Spirit was pushing me to do that, but to say, just wrote a note and said, stop here and make an invitation to accept Christ. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird because that'd be in the middle of my message. Why would I stop in the middle of my message and make an invitation to accept Christ? But, you know, I got into the message and all of a sudden I got there and I just, it was one of those moments where I just clearly was hearing the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart saying, stop right here, make an invitation to accept Christ. Stop right here, make an invitation to accept Christ. So I stopped. I talked about Cornelius. I began to share. I said, maybe like some of you and, and people had their heads down and I just said, you know, we're going to pray here in a second. But I said, you know, maybe some of you are like Cornelius. Man, you've grown up knowing about Jesus. You knew all sorts of things about him. You, you've heard all the accounts about him. You know some things about Christianity, but you don't know him personally. You don't know him personally. It's just knowledge to you. And I made an invitation and some hands went up and, and I looked out and there was that husband and wife and their hands went up. Both of them. That just blew me away. It just blew me away. And I suddenly realized, and in talking to them on the back end of their placing their faith in Christ, that, yep, and they admit, they said, we we're like Cornelius. We, we understood some of the things, but we never, it never connected until now of the faith that Christ was requiring from us personally. What an awesome truth that is. And there are people like this in our world, but here's the great news. Here's the great news. It tells us that for those who really want to know and understand truth, God will send truth to them. He will send truth to them. That's why I'm not at all concerned with, uh, you know, the old argument, what about the guy on a deserted island who never heard the gospel question that people always seem to raise and they're concerned about? If, here's my answer to that. If that person, their heart is towards God and they really want to know truth, and that's what it takes, really wanting to know truth, not their own ideas about truth, but sincerely wanting to know the truth about God, God will do whatever is needed to bring truth to that person. I don't care where they are on this planet. He's doing that with Muslims today. And even making personal appearances, the accounts go, you know, in some places. If you want to truly know truth, God will reveal truth. He will send a missionary into the deepest recesses of the jungles to a tribe that, never, that, that the world has never heard of before to share it with them if they're truly seeking him. 
He will raise up a Peter through a vision and a dream to to go to someone that most would consider outside of the realm of salvation, such as the case would have been with Cornelius to a good Jew. The Jews wouldn't have seen, we're not going to go witness to this, to this Gentile. And on top of that, he's a Roman. He's a soldier in the Roman army, in the empire. And yet God raises up Peter to go. Jesus will even make, as I said, a personal appearance to that person and lead him or her to himself through a personal testimony, a revelation of himself, just as he's doing in some parts of the world today. And as he did with the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he will send you. As a believer, if you are willing to go to those around you that need the missing pieces filled in that will enable them to see the full picture of the gospel just like he used to kill and Priscilla to reach Apollos. God will always respond to the heart that is toward him and that is searching for truth. Just as he tells us in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. If you truly want to know, maybe you're sitting there today. You've heard all the stories. You've heard all the stuff that people have talked about on Jesus. Maybe you think you know some things about Christianity, but maybe your knowledge is incomplete and you've never taken the step of faith because it is. Maybe he sent me here to you this morning and brought you to this broadcast just so you could hear this. If you truly want to know truth, if you truly want to know God, you're promised that if you search for him with all your heart, you will find him. And I promise you this, you will find him only in the person of Jesus Christ, whom he has revealed himself through. So is this the case with Theophilus? Is this why Luke is writing to him? Is Theophilus a man whose heart is towards God, who knows some things about him, but whose knowledge is incomplete and, and he's just waiting for the rest of the pieces to be filled in so that he can find salvation? Or is he already a believer who Luke simply wants to help disciple in a greater way in regard to the truths about Jesus that, that you know Theophilus has already placed his faith in? We simply don't know. But what we do know is that Luke is writing specifically to him to give him the full picture of, and, and the assurance of the truth about Jesus Christ. And hopefully our study of this book will do the same for you. Well, let's look on at verse 5. It says in verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, and the account begins now, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. We're now introduced to two initial players in this drama that will unfold in this gospel. And it's a person named Zacharias and someone named Elizabeth. Now, several things that Luke tells us about the setting and about these two individuals will play a unique role in the gospel account. Number one, the scene is set during the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, Herod is not the name of an individual, but it's the name given to a ruling family, a ruling dynasty, in the same way that Caesar was not the name of one particular individual, but it was a title given to the ruling family as they assumed those positions of leadership over the Roman Empire. And the Herod dynasty ruled over Palestine by the authority and the appointment of the Romans. Now, this particular Herod was someone known as Herod the Great. 
and he ruled from 37 uh, B.C. to 4 B.C. Remember, the B.C.'s count down, not up, as we do with the A.D.'s. So from 37 to 4 B.C., he ruled, and this means that at the time that these events are occurring, he's getting near the end of his reign. And Herod the Great was not a Jew, but he was actually what was known as an Idumean from Edom. Historians tell us that through political maneuvering and the support of Mark Anthony from Rome, he managed to get himself appointed ruler over a large part of Palestine or Canaan by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. Now, Herod the Great also had a terrible reputation for intrigue and cruelty. As one commentator points out, he said, Herod the Great killed his wives and offspring so readily that a popular saying of the day was that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. Whoa. So it's in this dark period, if you'll get the setting here, it's in this dark period that the events Luke is about to describe will unfold. Secondly, we're told about Zacharias. Zacharias comes to mention. Now, Zacharias literally means remembered by Yahweh. Remembered by Yahweh. And shortly we'll see how true that name is as the events begin to unfold in this account. Now, Luke tells us that Zacharias is a priest of the division of Abijah. Now, Abijah is one of the divisions within the tribe of Levi or the Levites, the priestly tribe, which were assigned duties on a rotational basis in the tabernacle and, and later in the temple. And throughout the year, these varying divisions served on a rotational basis, each division on duty uh, twice a year for a week at a time, except during the major festivals or feasts when all of the priests would gather in Jerusalem to share the temple duties. Historically, only four of the 24 divisions of Levites returned from exile in Babylon. And, And the ones that returned were then subdivided so that different ones officiated at the temple on different weeks. And the division that Zacharias belonged to, the Abijah division, was considered to be the least prestigious of the divisions. It's always interesting how God oftentimes does miraculous things with the lesser. I saw someone saying the other day that they don't know why they're in Christ. They don't know why Christ would have even looked at them. And my comment was trophies of his grace. He loves to reach down and touch the untouchables. He loves to use those that the world would scowl at. He loves to touch people that are seemingly nobodies and bringing them to light because he knows that by doing that, the world will see him. They will see his hand upon them. And so here, the division that Zacharias belongs to is, again, the least prestigious of the divisions. But it is Zacharias' division that is serving at the time that the events that are about to unfold in this account take place. And the next person we're introduced to is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is introduced as the wife of Zacharias. And she also shares a Levitical lineage as well, because Luke tells us that she's the daughter of Aaron, who is the initial high priest from whom the priestly line of the Levites descended. Now, you'll note that this lineage of both Zacharias and Elizabeth is significant because it sets the stage for what is about to happen. Something else we're told, Zacharias and Elizabeth are a godly couple. Luke tells us that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that they were sinless. 
Human beings are not sinless. Romans 3, chapter, uh, verse 9 through 20 lays out a, an iteration that says that there's none righteous, no, not one. So we know that, that human beings just are not sinless, but it means that they were living their lives as best they could in keeping God's commandments, living by faith in God for their righteousness, just as Abraham and David did and, and found justification for that faith. Uh, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through verse 8, Paul writes about this kind of righteousness, a righteousness that you and I have if our faith is in Christ and not in the works that we do or in the things that we do. Our faith being in Christ. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, has, was found, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Did you hear that? Abraham believed God. His faith was in God, not in himself, not in the works he could do. Yeah, Abraham did good things. There's no question about it. You got to go go back and read the accounts in Genesis of Abraham's life. This is a good dude, you know, all the way around. But his faith was not in the works of righteousness that he did, but his faith was in Christ. Well, not in Christ. His faith was in God. He was really kind of looking forward, really, in a lot of ways, to the Messiah who would one day come. But his faith was in God for his righteousness. And because of that, God imputed righteousness to him. And that's what he does with you and me. That doesn't mean we don't do good works. It doesn't mean we shouldn't walk righteously. We should, but our dependency is upon God, not upon ourselves. And and that's the case with Zacharias and Elizabeth. Uh, Fifthly, we're told Zacharias and Elizabeth were unable to have children. It says there, but they had no child, verse 7, because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Now, this was a big deal in that day. I realize it's still a big deal to many people and understandably so. Not having kids can be hard for, for people, you know, but, but, but for different reasons today, it's difficult than it was then. In that day, it wasn't just sorrow of wanting children and, and not being able to have them, but it was also viewed as a sign of God's displeasure, that God was displeased with them. Barrenness had a spiritual implication associated with that stigmatized you with other Jews and also in your own heart. And yet we have to ask, how can this be if this couple were living godly lives? Why would they not be blessed? How could they be declared righteous and yet lacking this clear blessing from God? Here's an important lesson that, that applied to their situation then, and even though they didn't see it at first, and, and it applies to situations yet today. We have our view of what it means to be blessed by God, don't we? We have our own views of what that means. And, and when circumstances are such that our view of blessing is not being met, it grieves us. And we immediately begin to think that something is wrong with us spiritually. Something's wrong, must be wrong in our relationship with God because he's doing this for that person, but he's not doing it for me. See, that's our definition. And when he doesn't meet our definition of blessing, then all of a sudden it becomes for us a matter of something wrong spiritually It would have been easy for Zacharias and Elizabeth to draw 
those kinds of conclusions. They were living in one of the darkest and most oppressive periods of history. And God had pretty much been silent for 400 years. Not a word, not a whisper. And despite living godly lives in such circumstances, they couldn't have children. And they were fast approaching the age where childbearing would become impossible. Just imagine the unsettledness of of this would have caused in, in their own hearts. Think about this for a minute. And yet in a few verses, we're about to see how God is often working behind the scenes in unseen ways that will in the end take those dark circumstances and situations and turn them around into a blessing. Not always as he will in the case for this couple, but in our lives in ways and unforeseen ways, maybe in ways that we haven't even defined as a blessing, but God will work through it like Joseph with his brothers. Remember Joseph in in the Old Testament? His brothers cast him into a pit because they were jealous with him, and he goes as a slave, and and, and in the process, all these bad things happen. He ends up in jail at one point. Accusations are made against him by a high-ranking Egyptian's wife, and just you just think things can't get worse. And yet he rises to a position of prominence in the end in Egypt. During a drought that has devastated the land, he's able to provide not only for Egypt, but for his only family that's still back in the promise, in the land, uh, and uh, almost said in the promised land, they hadn't gotten there yet, but back in the land. But, but here's what he says to his brothers, because now when he reveals himself to them as to who he is, because they come seeking grain, and here they're talking to this Egyptian, high Egyptian official, and now that he's revealed himself as his brother, and, and they are thinking to themselves, he's going to kill us. All these things we did to him, he's going to kill us. His life has been miserable. He's going to get us. Listen to what he says, because it's, it's something we should take to heart. He says in verse 20 of Genesis 50, But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about it, as is this day, to save many people alive. Joseph had a bigger picture of God than most people do in this life. He could have easily looked at all his dark circumstances and said, God is not blessing me. God is not blessing me. God is not blessing me. And even when he rose to a position of prominence, he could have still harbored things in his heart. And yet what he saw was the greater picture because what he's saying is, even as I was going through the evil, I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I knew this, that my relationship with the Lord was solid. And in the process, he was going to bring something good out of it. He was going to do that. May I encourage you that this morning? I don't care if it has to do with barrenness of not being able to have children or whether it's your finances are failing or you're struggling through illness or whatever it is to understand that our definition of blessing and God's definition of blessing may be two different things. And because we're walking through a difficult period, doesn't mean that God is not blessing us or that he's not going to work an even greater blessing out of what it is we're coming through. Be patient. Let God have his work and take the greater picture. Take the greater view of things. Trust me, it will not only give you peace, but it'll give you the right heart and attitude towards the Lord in your own life personally. Look at verse 8. It goes on, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So Luke now tells us that while Zacharias is serving as a part of his division's rotation in the temple, that he wins basically the lottery and he receives a turn to go into the temple to burn incense. What I mean is they, 
it was his turn. He drew the straw to go. And this, this alone was an extraordinary event because the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, which is the collection of Jewish civil and ceremonial law and legend, says that there were so many priests at this time that each offered incense only once in his lifetime. Others not at all. So this, this tells us this, this happening was extraordinary. And the idea here, we almost see it as it just so happens as they cast lots, is almost the sense. It just so happens as lots are drawn that Zechariah draws a lot that wins him this duty on this particular day. You know, we often attribute things to chance, but the older I get with the greater ability to look back over things that have happened in my life, the more I realize that a lot of what seemed like chance events had nothing to do with chance at all. You know, as Proverb tells us, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Hmm. I'm not saying that everything that happens in life is, is perfectly orchestrated by the Lord, but I am saying that there is nothing that happens that he is not at least aware of. And that one day we will all look back and be truly amazed at all of the connections to the things that we thought were nothing more than chance happenings turning out to be something that either the Lord had put in place or he had worked through in the end to bring us to the things that he wanted to bring us to. And that's what he's doing here with Zacharias. Look on at verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Here now, as Zacharias is serving in this special role in the temple, an angel appears to him. Zacharias most likely had his eyes tightly shut in prayer, but when he opened them, he saw this angel and it understandably shook him up. Fear is the reaction we find throughout the scriptures when human beings initially come in contact with entities from the spirit realm like this. But we're also told that he sees this angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was located in the holy place, which is where only the priests could go and serve as you had the, the layout of the tabernacle and later the temple, whereas Zacharias was serving, you had the outer court and into there, you know, the sacrifices could come, the people could come. And then, then there was the inner area and that first inner area was the holy place and only the priests could go in. That's where the table of showbread was and the, the golden lamp stands and, and the altar of incense and, and all of that's in there. And that altar of incense stood right in front of this giant curtain, this gigantic veil that separated this area from the Holy of Holies where the Ark was kept, the Ark of the Covenant was kept, where only the high priest could go once a year in order to atone for the sins of the people. And so it's here that this angel is standing and, and really unnerving Zacharias just a bit. The connection of him standing there means he's standing right in front of the veil to the Holy, place, to the Holy of Holies. And so you have this sense that he's, he's being sent by God to speak to him. But note the angel's response, because it's also a response found throughout Scripture when men encounter the angels of God, at least when saved men encounter them. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Don't be afraid. Now, Zacharias is performing his duties of offering incense and praying. And note, when, when the priest, it tells us that the priest was offering incense as a part of the duty, that was considered a great honor, and it was associated with a special time to offer up prayers and requests to God. But it's during this time of prayer that this angel appears to Zechariah, and look at the first thing he says. Don't be afraid. Fear not. 
The tense of this phrase in the Greek has the implication of stopping something that is already in progress. In other words, Zacharias is shaking in his sandals and this angel sees it and knows it. And he's saying, you can stop. Don't be afraid. Zacharias is, is clearly afraid of this angel and it's visible. And, and, and this angel was telling him that he could let his fears rest. There was no danger here. It was going to be okay. This is a response we see repeatedly in the scriptures when human beings, again, especially saved human beings, come in contact with these divine representatives. Why? Because we have nothing to fear from them. We have nothing to fear from them, at least not if we're in the Lord, we don't. For us, they are not ministers of harm, but they're ministers sent by God for our own good and for our own benefit. As the writer to Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now listen, we should never focus upon angels, and, and, and some people do that. Angels are never to be our focus. They're not to be our, our focus of worship or really our attention for much. And that, yet at the same time, they are very real, and we need not fear them. If and when we encounter them, we can know that if they are from the Lord, which is easy to tell because they will always glorify God and point to Jesus. That's how you know, to always glorify God and point to Jesus. If an angel points to himself, I can tell you, he's not from the Lord. He's coming from the pit of hell itself. If an angel is pointing to something else, for pointing you to something else between, besides God and Jesus, I can promise you it is not an angel of the Lord. But if we do encounter them and they are from the Lord, we can know that they're set for our own benefit. Look on at verse 13. It says in the latter half, let's read the whole thing again. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And so here we see the second thing this angel says to Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. This angel tells us that while he was serving in this capacity, among other things, Zacharias was lifting up prayers for himself and for his wife Elizabeth and their longing to have a child. The implication is he was doing that. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse -verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.